Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Yvette Larson. She asks three key questions that she's passionate about. What does it mean to be human in a global age of technology? What happens when we educate the heart first and foremost? And what is learning in the 21st century about? She does research and develops systems that enhance human potential. By day, she's an international baccalaureate primary years international educator. In her free time, she's an ed startup innovator with a focus on redefining education for 21st century learners, using recent research in the field of neuroscience, making learning fun, and on a deep level through project-based learning, conceptual thinking, skills, focus, and agency anchored in a classroom without walls. She organizes hackathons and implements well-being programs at scale. She writes in well-being magazines, is a country lead for Learn Life, and does advisory board work for 100. Welcome, Yvette. It's nice to have you here. Thank you so much, Tanya, for inviting me. And I so look forward to this conversation today. Me too. So let's start with your questions. What does it mean to be a human in the global age of technology? So that is a question that uh, not only I, but my colleague uh, Nana Spence and I from AHA that we are looking into when we do our work. And we are looking at the two different components, humans and tech, and also the point between. So what does it mean to be human in a global age of technology and also in the context of learning and innovation, working with young learners, students in school, students, learners at hackathons? So we are actually looking at the humanness of the 21st century when technology is taking such a big part of our lives. Like, I love it. But I also think that there needs to be some sort of balance with it. So I am loving it. We can do those kinds of things. We are on a podcast now. You're in the U.S. and I'm in Sweden. I'm loving it when I can keep contact. But there are also things that I see, especially the work with young people, is that how easy it is to also get completely absorbed by tech, by social media, especially teenagers. So we are looking at the humanness, like who are we in the 21st century? How do we socialize? How do we solve things? How are we together? How do we create communities? Because we are facing also a lot of challenges right now with polarization in society, climate change. There is a war going on in Europe. So there are a lot of things that challenge us. And that's why we are also looking at things that has proven to be beneficial for homo sapiens, actually. And that is the creativity, the collaboration and the communication skills. So we think that working with skills in a school setting is very important. So skills-based learning is something that we believe can also help individuals thrive, not only survive, but thrive in the times we live in. And also those things like having a community, being with friends, doing those things like art, creativity, those are things that are so natural for us. But take, for example, creating things like with your hands, if it's painting or sometimes 
when we grow up as adults, we forget or we become less courageous. But creativity is also so important for us when we want to innovate, when we want to create solutions and make this world a better place. So looking at also the other question that connects, what does it mean when we educate the heart? That is also going into our passions. How do we unlock that passion in us all? We are educators. We work with young people. How can we unlock that when there are a lot of students also, especially teenagers who don't know? They don't know their direction, where they want to go. And uh, so I think see also that giving a, a big spectrum of activities, uh, immersive learning situations, using all our senses are some of the things that we are actually looking at. And also how we coexist with, for example, social media, how we coexist with this rapid development of the tech. So I think that it's a constant, constant challenge to balance it all. Definitely. You mentioned teenagers and tech and talking to my nieces and nephews who are teenagers and they talk about following their friends on Instagram or seeing the stories that they put up or the things that they've done and they'll connect with them through the tech, but then they're not friends in person. Mm -hmm. I see it with adult relationships too, and especially on social media where you're continually connecting with something or chatting with them over social media, but you don't know them in person. And when you're in Sweden and I'm in the US, like this makes sense. We're not going to run into each other in the hallway. And I love technology because we get a chance to talk and connect. But when you're in the same high school and you're in the same hallway and you're connecting on technology, but you're not connecting in person, how do you address that? Or you know, what does that look like for the social and emotional development of our youth for where this is happening? Because it's a relatively new phenomenon. Yeah. So if we look at, for example, I am looking at communication skills, for example. And I do believe that, for example, when they connect on uh, Snapchat, for example, uh, that's also another type of connection. And it's great that they, they are connecting there. But what I am a little bit restless about is the part when it comes to communications, like reading a face, looking at face expressions, looking at body language, being able to speak and connect to others when we are uh, sort of analog and digital. And I think that it, that is the thing that I am picking up from from my own kids as well. And uh, especially post-COVID, looking at social skills as well, how we connect and how we communicate. That is something that we need to co-create with the young people as well. And when we talk to them, they say many similar things, but also with the addition that the communicating within the social media is also a way of communicating. And I'm actually making an analogy. I was thinking about art in the same sense, like um, what is art? Uh, is it only tangible art, let's say, when NFTs are coming in digital art? And what is, for example, leaving um, artifacts behind if everything is digital? So I had this conversation with a group of different people. There were art people, graphic designers, there were innovators. And what I thought was interesting was that it was this person I know who, who is an artist himself. And he said that, yeah, that is just another addition to art. We will have so many different types of art and digital is just another addition. So, yeah, I could buy that for social media as well. But I, in parallel, I hope that we are also supporting young people to be able to be great collaborators and communicators working with their social skills. So tell us about the hackathons that you organize. You know, what is what are the goals of that event and how do you mold 
the humanness and the playfulness with the technology in a hackathon? Yes. So far, we have run two, what shall I say, more official hackathons. The first one was the future of education is now, because we don't think that it's in the future. It's like now. So then it was 2021. And this year, we organized a hackathon that we called Game Changers and Peacekeepers, uh, addressing what is going on in Europe now. But let's start with the first one, the, the future of education. When we've been working as an IB educator, a lot of things are about action, taking agency. The student is the driver of their own learning. And so we were saying that when we are going to all those conferences and workshops and talks, it's just adults talking. And we said, we are missing out the key stakeholder here. And that is the young people. We want to hear from them. What do they think? What would they like to see in school? And so we said that let's organize a local event both for youth from our hometown and from all over the world, whoever wants to join. So we were reaching out to our LinkedIn community, actually. And so we had a group of students from Sweden, and then we had a team from Holland coming and from Agora School. And then we had online, we had students from many different parts of the world. And then we took them through, we call it like, a, it's more like a learnathon. So before the hackathon itself, they get some pre-readings and actually they also get to know what the challenges will be. There will be five or six challenges. And they also get a chance to connect with the other teams. And I think that was the most fun part of it for the uh, global teams. We uh, organized so that they can all see their each other's drives, the Google drives, so they can learn from each other. But then on the actual hackathon, we are working a lot with applied neuroscience. We're working a lot with fun and games. We're working with a dose uh, like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins. And so when we create the event itself, it needs to have those components. There needs to be that dopamine is driving, that's the inquiry, that's excitement, that's the wow, what is going to happen. And the endorphins is that we want the students to have fun when they, when they do our hackathons and connect with each other. The oxytocin Serotonin, we want them to feel that psychological safety because that is sort of the, the base of all relationships, all the foundation so we can be creative, communicative, collaborative. And then we design the whole weekend. We design it as in design thinking. There is a challenge and then they have a certain time to come up with solutions. And then at the end, they were going to create a video. And it was so fun because... The key message from all of them was that they wanted, young people wanted us to trust them. They said, we want adults to trust us, to trust our judgment, to trust us more in processes. And that was from all of them. And then they created those videos and those videos are on our YouTube channel. But then the hackathon itself has six modules and those modules are also, I would like to say something about them, that is also the work we've done, all the research, with the time we spent reading reports from academia, from uh, different actors within uh, education and innovation and conversations. And of course, uh, inspired by the IB, inspired by positive psychology. My colleague, uh, Nana, she's a sports psychologist. So the modules, they are like a skills playbook. So the there are cognitive skills, social emotional skills, physical, environmental, digital. And then this year we added spiritual. And so we are looking at 
giving them tools for growth mindset, to be resilient, looking at who am I and who am I together with others, looking at environment as the environment that we are in, what, what impact does it have on my learning? But also environment is a bigger scope, like the planet that we're living on. And then a physical that is also thinking about our well-being, physical and spiritual, thinking about our well-being and how that has an impact on how we deal with everyday life. And um, spiritual was more like, not necessarily religious, but more like, and how do I create hope? Do I have rituals that supports my learning, etc.? And the digital one was about who am I as a producer and consumer of digital and how can I create something good with digital? And of course, with subcategories. So that is the short version. It sounds like so thoughtfully created, looking at the layout and making sure that you're utilizing the neuroscience of what we know is going to engage and motivate and help to build the skills and create in that intrinsic motivation for students to want to be there. And I love the verbiage of global learnathon, <laughs> the global and local combined and really creating, yeah, challenges and connection. Mm -hmm. And actually what you say is super important with the connection because that was what we wanted. We wanted, we want to connect young people across the globe and so that they can also be united in the humanity we all have the same needs and like the, the same uh, basic needs and then let's see what they say about the education and, and they had so many similar ideas i mean wow so you mentioned you had kind of an online component of students around the world and your group in sweden and a group in did you say holland the dutch team they came to us in sweden during covid we were not in lockdown i think we were the only country in the whole world so we were not in lockdown and during that time, the Dutch team, they came with the train and they actually took part at the hackathon at place here in, in Helsingborg. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And then we had teams, different teams from different countries. And you had like students from all over the world. And if I'm hearing you right, you're saying they kind of came up with one message is that they want to be trusted. Yeah. And trusted with their ideas and trusted with their decisions and trusted with the process. So how do we as educators enlist or create more trust with our students or show them that we trust them in more ways? Yeah, this is a very, very important one. And I think that it has not a super easy answer. It could be super easy. It could be a little bit complicated. <laughs> But let's do the easy one first. And that is, I think that us uh, educators need to let go a little bit of control, like in a traditional classroom. Now I haven't been working so traditionally, but uh, in general, what I'm hearing, people I talk to, but to let go of control, I work a lot of, with the project-based learning and design thinking as well. And then when you work that way, you sort of need to trust the students in their process. So I think that the first one is to... Trust the students in the process and, of course, give them tools so that they can work. And then, of course, I think that the more difficult one is, of course, um, the sort of a system that you work in. Every school has a culture, etc. And here, I guess, but I like the name of your podcast here. I'm sometimes a little bit rebellious. I'm maybe the kind of person who rather say sorry than ask for permission. Um, so I think that 
when it comes to uh, changing the way we work with students, changing structures, changing anything, we just have to be a little bit more courageous. I'm sometimes thinking about like um, sometimes you need small steps, sometimes you need something bigger. I mean, both work in different ways. You can be the Rosa Park of school or you can just work in your classroom taking step-by-step changes. I mean, that's uh, up to who we are as persons. And I found out through the years, because I, like you, I like to ask those questions. Like if something isn't working, I have a default in my brain going, okay, so how can we make this better? What is actually needed in this moment? And that if I'm standing in front of my students, what do they need now? And this was so evident for me. I had a really, I had an aha moment uh, during COVID because as we primary years teachers, we were working, we were never in lockdown and we were at school the whole time. And of course, we had another type of dynamic because teachers were kind of scared coming to work. I worked in an international school and we all had families abroad who were asking us, why are you in school? You should be home. So then I, I actually asked the students, this is an example of just checking in where they are. I just asked them because that seemed so restless and uh, they couldn't concentrate. And I thought, I need to stop now. And I just sat down with them and said, how are you today? And it showed that, I mean, 95% of them slept badly because they were thinking of COVID or they were thinking of, of the family members. And if I hadn't sat down and just stopped, then I would have probably gone through with my planning and it wouldn't have gone so well. Instead, now we had a really, really deep and authentic uh, conversation about our fears and our longing for well-being and health and be together and all those kinds of things. So I think that we need to take a pause. When something isn't working, there is a signal that how can we make it better? And I think there is also some strength in being many, like teacher bestie or uh, somebody that you team up with that you can talk to and uh, try out ideas and that. That's actually how we grew our well-being program at school. Like we, we started small. We started first in my class, then in three classes. And then all of a sudden after COVID, the whole primary school is now doing well-being program. So I think small step is always good. I have a one foot in innovation and startup. And there you always start small with one thing and then you see if you should scale it or not. So I personally believe in, in that most of the time. Can you talk a little bit more about the well-being program and what you created and how that's grown at your school? Absolutely. So it started with, I did a small professional learning community. So I had to choose a research field. And then I chose like a pilot about growth mindsets and about so the applied neuroscience methodologies. And I started with that. And then I met Nana, who is the co-founder of HAL, and she was doing something about social emotional learning play-based learning, inclusion. And we started to talk together. And together with the PE teacher, we created a pilot where we wanted all students to have physical activity in some shape every day in school. And so we ran it in my class. And the year after, not the term after, we were asking all the teachers in school if they wanted to participate. And we got two other classes because the other ones, they said, oh, we don't have time with that. So we realized we were not so good at showing the science behind and everything. And then came COVID and all of a sudden everybody wanted to have the well-being program. They wanted to work more with social and emotional learning. And from that on, we connected it with a 
PSPE uh, curriculum, and uh, we we wrote curriculum, you can say, and uh, and then we also helped the teachers to set it up in their classes. Uh, we made a bank of activities that they could use, and then of course, after the program has been going on for a little while, we of course hoped that the students would also kick in and want to start to hold those sessions, and that is what's going on now. And Nana is actually employed now as a health instructor in that school. And so the program is now becoming bigger. Uh, we have friendship agents and there are connections to almost every subject. And the challenge is middle years and senior years because then you don't have past teachers, then you have more specialist teachers. So it becomes a little bit trickier. But I think you have to have a principle that is open-minded and ours was. So that was good. There you have it, Rebel Educators. Ask that question, how can you make it better? Find someone in your school that can champion and work with your idea. Start it small and see where it can grow and see what you can do. That simple question of how can we make it better? And I loved you said something a little bit earlier about being permissionless and asking. We talk a lot about, you know, do we want to ask permission or ask forgiveness? Like, which side of that coin should we be on? And that decision's different, right, for lots of different questions. But I love the idea of being a permissionless rebel and having the courage to take those steps and make changes, you know, as small or as large as they may be within your classroom or your community in the things that you lead. So what led you to co-founding AHA? Yes. So that is a good question. But first of all, I just want to say that I love everything you said there because I want to say something about change also, tagging along what you were saying, because I think that I sometimes just take the helicopter perspective and I'm thinking, so hopefully I will be here for maybe a hundred years. Who knows if I have my health? But why don't we just uh, try and make this time that we have here on Earth the best we can, that the best we possibly can. And this is a sort of a question uh, that I had to myself when I'm scared sometimes about asking a question or driving change, etc. And also, if we think about youth as well, like we have them for a couple of years, we have such possibilities to co-create with them as well. So AHA, AHA started actually with the well-being program. That is how we connected, Nana and I. And when we did the well-being program, it was also very intense. So we started to talk about all the things that we are looking at. When we look at school and education, we started to look at all the possibilities, everything that we wanted to do. And as I said, it became so much easier when you're two, because when you're one, you're just like in little island and there are lots of things you can do. But then we also were so lucky that we were invited to a newly opened tech hub here in Helsingborg called Hedge, where they are under one roof. You find anything you want uh, when it comes to startups. So we also had a lot of great conversations with the people there on how to grow our idea. And um, the idea is also to look at those questions like, what if? To really ask those question that may be a little bit, it demands some work because the whole thing is to innovate learning experiences that are for our 21st century people, learning experiences that are shaped with authenticity. Like it's so proven that if students can work with some real thing, that then their motivation is also uh, higher. 
So we wanted to work with real. We wanted to work with a classroom without walls, thinking that we have the internet. We can uh, connect with experts across the globe. We can invite them online. We can go out in our local communities. We can bring in uh, experts in our local communities. We can learn from the best. And also the students can learn from each other and also building a community where there is inclusion, where everyone feels like there is a place for them. That is so important. And I think also when we talk post-COVID here, that making that connection with each other, that can change a day, that can change somebody's day and the way we speak to each other. I think these were things, we, we just had this very, very strong drive to make learning and education more modern. And as we were also IB educators, we were working daily with disciplinary learning. We were working daily with skills-based learning, concept-based learning, complex problem-solving skills. And also what I am passionate about is also to see when you see authentic agency, when you see that there, there is a child or a young person who worked with somebody, you see that moment when oh, I can go out and interview or I can do a project or I can uh, set up a winter fair. You see that spark, that is the moment I live for. That is just, wow, for young people to be game changers, to find the passion and to be able to express that as well. So seeing what is possible with education, you talk about making it real and creating a classroom without walls and a global community and really building agency and connection. Does the constraint of the classroom ever become frustrating or do you feel that the dissonance between all the things that you think are possible or that you know are possible and the things that you're kind of allowed or able to do within the school environment? Yeah, of course there are those things. I think that when you work in a school, you are, as I said in the beginning, you're part of a, first of all, you're part of a school culture. Then you are also part of a curriculum, whether it's a national curi- curriculum or an IB or whatever cu- curriculum it is. And for me, the IB has always been very close to home. It felt very authentic for me. It was like harmonized with my own values. But then, of course, you're a big organization. And then there are, of course, things that can limit what you really want to do. So, for example, I am a lover of outdoor education. And when you have a class of 25 students, I can't take them all out by myself because the ratio is to hide those kinds of details. And so if there are, for example, no class assistants, then I can't go out. So then you start to think, hmm, but what can I do then? All right, what can we do at the playground? What can we do in the school premises? So then my sort of problem-solving brain start to work. But of course, there are lots of things that in an ideal world, in an ideal world, I would see more uh, more adults around schools. But that is also coming down to simple things like how the budget is, how, how that is prioritized. But I think that more adults around schools would alleviate a lot of things like both in, in the classroom and doing more things outside school, especially with the younger ones. So definitely there are things. And there are also other things like grading. Like uh, I think that is something that uh, most teachers talk about, like assessment and uh, what are we assessing? Because what we are assessing, that is what the student thinks is important. 
So, for example, I noticed my own daughter, the years that she made the transition from primary years to middle years, and all of a sudden the grades started to become so much. Like they started to have conversations on the phone about the grades. And during primary years, they didn't take so much time to discuss it. So what is it that we are assessing? If skills are important, then skills maybe needs to be assessed or self-assessment and digital portfolios. I think we will see loads of new ways of looking at assessment as well, because we are also redefining what it is that is important to do in schools. And at some places it goes quickly or in organizations where there is a type of leadership is here and now, like can read what is going on in our society. I think these are the type of organizations that will really, really grasp 21st century learning. And then, of course, there are the national curriculums that will take longer time. We just had a new government in Sweden now, and I was so curious to see what the Ministry of Education is looking at. And they are looking at fact and knowledge and nothing about skills. So I thought, okay, let's do our what you are doing in Tanya, rebel education. <laughs> Grassroots movements are very strong, I think. I agree. And one of the things that you said that really struck me is that what we are assessing is what the student thinks is important. I guess that seems obvious because that's the things that the students are studying. And so then they think that those are the important things. So how do we align like what we are assessing with what really is important to us? Like, is it those facts? Is it the skills? And how are we making sure that we're creating the focus point on the right things so the students are really focusing on and spending their time building the things that we want them to build, not just the things that it might be easy to assess? You're so right. Oh, gosh, you're so right. Yeah. I've been so baffled recently because I've been an IBA edu- educator for nine years, and I've been also recently working in the national curriculum. And with the IB is very strong on skills, I think. It's used and made and the, it's immersive. And then seeing how students who are used to work with skills, they just take on things like thinking there is something that is automatic. What do I need now? I pick something out from my toolbox. So it's not just learning the facts and the knowledge and that part, but it's also how, learning how to learn. And what is it that I need? And so then when working in a national curriculum, which is not at all based on skills, then the students become almost mad. Not mad, but confused is a better word. When I add uh, skills-based learning, what do you need uh, in this project? And it's like, this is not English, or this is not Swedish, or this is not media and communication. So it's just uh, very, very interesting to see what you can do when you focus on the things that sort of drives the learning, it's so fascinating. So there's a question that I like to ask all of my guests because I run an elementary school. And so I love to hear what you remember from your elementary school years, if you can share a story. Uh-huh. Okay. When I think about my elementary years, because I was born in the very north of Sweden, like above the Arctic Circle where we have reindeers and some people think that Santa lives there, but who knows? <laughs> uh, but my elementary years, that it's, um, I'm thinking about walking to school in the snow. And life was really slow. I was a student who found school very easy. And I also liked school. 
So I guess I also very quickly realized uh, how I can use it. So I am thinking about a snow life, like walking to school in the snow, playing during break with my friends, coming in and my socks were wet from the snow and the Everything felt so slow, like maybe I am romanticizing it. And I can clearly also see the school in front of me and we had school lunches and the lunch ladies, they seem to have so much time. I think there is something there, like um, even music was slower at the time. So lots of time outside. I was skiing a lot as well. And I loved uh, English was one of my favorite subjects. So... Yeah, that was elementary school, I guess. So did you, if I can ask a question about that, I'm assuming it was a smaller town being up north and a slower pace of life. So did you have a lot of interaction with the different grades and different ages of students or was it still very segregated? I think it was quite segregated, like at most schools now. Yeah, definitely. It was a very experimental, uh, I must say. That is something that I'm also a little bit bothered about, like a classroom design. I sometimes bring out a picture of the first Swedish school in school as it is now is from 1842, where class desks were in rows. And some of the classrooms still look like that. And these are also things that I'm I'm sort of questioning, like, uh, why do classrooms, some classrooms look like that? And what were the reason? And uh, also thinking about the bigger perspective of school and learning, like uh, humans have existed for millions of years. And our idea of school, our structure of school is very new. And so if we have created that type of system, we can also change it when it doesn't serve us anymore. That is a question that we can throw out there, like, what is the concept of school and learning? What do we want it to be? Because we are thinking the future. It doesn't just happen to us. Yeah, I love that. I had a couple of thoughts. And my first was, well, things haven't changed since 1842. So, of course, we should still do school the same way, right? <laughs> exactly the same outside. But also, yeah, we created this system. And so if it's not serving us, we can change it. Yeah. And that's what the podcast is about. That's what being a rebel educator is about. That's what, you know, all of these little shifts in, you know, your question of if you see something like, how do I make it better? Or how can we make this better is making those shifts. Thank you so much, Yvette. How can people get in touch with you? I think the best thing is to reach out on LinkedIn. I think that is where I am the most. And that is also connections to Aha as well. So. LinkedIn is the best way. Thank you so much, Tanya, for the invite. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, rebel educators. Rebel educators.